1: Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. <music> My guest today is Sumbul Ali Karamali, author of Demystifying Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. Sharia, or Sharia law, or even words like fatwa or jihad, these are all words that have been weaponized by anti-Muslim activists to promote fear and Islamophobia. The truth is, many people, even many Muslims like myself, don't fully understand these words or concepts. Sumbul's book gives us context for these concepts by walking us through the history of Sharia as well as the history of Islam. It's one of the best books I've ever read about Islam, and what I loved about the book is that the writing is far from academic, it's very approachable and funny at times, and she uses examples from her own life to illustrate points, and also throws in some Star Trek references to boot. Sumbul has been writing books answering questions about Islam and Muslims for over a decade, Her first book, called The Muslim Next Door, was written after 9-11 as a response to public discourse. Her second book was called Growing Up Muslim, and it covers the foundation of Islam for a preteen audience. Demystifying Sharia is her third book, and we started our conversation talking about an incident that happened to her at her Stanford reunion
2: 10 years ago. So I, yes, I was at my Stanford reunion and it was an alumni authors event at the bookstore. So there I was with other alumni authors and I was standing next to a table with a pile of my books on it, waiting hopefully for somebody to come and buy a book so I could sign it. And this elderly couple who was there, they were there for their uh, 50th, Stanford reunion, came up to me and they said, we're really afraid that Sharia is taking over the United States and i said well actually it can't because we have a constitution and <laughs> no religious law can take over the united states and they said yes but rush limbaugh said it could and then they went away
1: <laughs> oh man how did that make you feel
2: it was it was depressing and also it was really the first time that i had come across this word sharia in the public discourse i mean This was something that never came up when I first wrote my my book. So my first book came out in 2008, and I have maybe a paragraph on Sharia because loosely it just means Islam. Sharia just means Islam. So it's redundant to really talk about that in a book that's answering questions about Islam and Muslims. And so I didn't talk about it very much, and yet two years later in 2010, there's a huge kind of explosion of the word in the public discourse. And suddenly there are anti-Sharia protests and this this little old couple coming up to me randomly in the Stanford bookstore. And I thought, what is going on? <laughs> and um, that's when I first started to think, well, maybe I need to write a book on Sharia because this is just a very strange phenomenon. Demystifying Sharia really came about because of this incident that happened at the Stanford bookstore. And then also I realized it's not just you know non-Muslims who don't really understand this word, which has become a scare word in our public discourse, but also Muslims don't really understand it either. I think they did a study a few years ago where they asked Muslims, a bunch of Muslims, to define Sharia and most of them could not do it. And in fact, oh, I said I have to tell you when my when my um, book was coming out, one of my dad's friends, who is Muslim? Um, asked my dad, well, what's she doing these days? And my dad said, oh, she has this new book coming out, Demystifying Sharia. And this Muslim friend of my dad said, oh, I'm scared. I'm scared of Sharia.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. So my dad said, "We'll I'll read her book. <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> I highly recommend that he does. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, So it's about, it is about Sharia, but it's also an introduction to a lot of concepts in Islam that you have to know before you can understand Sharia. So I talk about it sort of in a nutshell, but then I explain what the foundation is, what the definitions are, um, how it developed over the years, how it was disrupted by colonization of Muslim lands, and um, what's going on with this word in the modern world, and also how Muslims engage with it. I mean, we don't think of it as engaging with Sharia, right? Like if we decide, so for example, if I decide as a woman whether or not I'm going to wear a headscarf, I'm engaging with Sharia, I, I hope. You know, I hope I'm not just taking the word of somebody that I should or shouldn't do it. Ideally, I would be thinking, well, you know, some Muslim scholars talked about this issue, some didn't. What is what is Sharia on this subject? What, is, what does my religion say on this subject? And then I would make a, an informed decision about it. So there's a chapter that talks about um, kind of Sharia in everyday life. Yeah. So I always find it useful to go back to to you know beginnings and definitions. Sharia sure. is not law the way we think of law, which is rigid and enforceable. It's actually a mass of religious guidelines. The literal meaning of the word just means the path to the watering place. In terms of religion, it means the path to righteousness. Now, what's what what's the path of righteousness? How do I know if I'm on the path of righteousness? Well, if, if I'm a Muslim, and if I were an early Muslim, say in the seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, what I would do is look to the Quran and the Sunnah, the words and deeds of the prophet Muhammad, and I would try to find an answer there as to how I could be on the path of righteousness. Now, the early Muslims didn't always find the answers there in a clear cut manner. And so they started interpreting the Quran and the Sunnah to come up with new guidelines And they fill books and books and books of this interpretive literature, and that is called fiqh. And the fiqh is not black and white rules. It is debates and arguments and opinions and sort of majority opinions and and minority opinions and evolving jurisprudence. So... It's not set in stone. It was meant to change. Too often Muslims, too, think, oh, it's Sharia. Sharia can't change. It's it's God's law. We can't change it. Well, Sharia as the way of God doesn't change in the abstract, but But fiqh, as interpretations of, of the religious texts, that can change and that was meant to change. And throughout history, it did change depending on geographical circumstances, on custom, on, you know, who was interpreting the texts. So on any point of law, you might say, on any religious point, there were often many opinions by many qualified Islamic scholars. Sharia has legal pluralism, which means lots of different opinions on a single point of law. And also it has legal flexibility because it takes into account factors like custom and culture and geography and necessity and hardship.
1: I was wondering, in the book, you give the example of applying Sharia to women wearing headscarves. I was wondering if you could run through that for our listeners just so they can get a sense of how it would be applied um, in that situation.
2: Yeah. So again, this goes back to what we were talking about, Asad, where, you know, too many of us just think there's one rule in Islam, right? There's this is what you have to do. Or, you know, what I found is that so many Muslims think that the more conservative you are, the more religious you are. And yet there's a huge range of opinions in Islam. Islam is fluid. This is when I was <laughs> when I was doing my degree in Islamic law, I remember my my professor who was a Christian, actually, none of my Islamic law professors were Muslim, which is
1: kind of oh, funny. Oh, that's so interesting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, he said, I remember he said, Islam is very fluid and more fluid than people think, is what he said. And I and I think that's totally true because we're grown up with our, I mean, we grew up with our parents saying, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> or our imams or whoever, our adults, yeah. our elders saying, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. And we don't realize that. Uh, there's a huge variety of opinions in in Islam that are all equally valid. So, you know, when Muftis were coming up with opinions on the religious text, when they're interpreting the religious text and coming up with their opinions, at at the end of giving a fatwa, which is a non-binding legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar, you know, when they came up with a fatwa, they would end it by saying, and Allah knows best, because they knew that they were fallible. They would, you know, it was their way of saying, "Here's my opinion. It might not be the right opinion. Somebody else has a different opinion, and only God knows which one is right. But I'm right. doing my best." Isn't that amazing? I, it, I just, it,
1: it really is.
2: I just think that's. I just think that is so wonderful. This idea that there are all these muftis and all these scholars, and they all said, "Well, I think I'm right, but he might be right, and God knows best." So, and,
1: and that you can pick and choose kind of the ones that that resonate with you the most.
2: You can. That's right. So if there are two learned Islamic scholars or more, you know, you can choose to follow one or the other in their opinions. Um, So, for example, you you asked about the headscarf. Well, there are only three verses really in the Quran that talk about head covering and it's not clear what they mean. I mean, it's, it's not clear. You could interpret them to mean that people in those days were wearing some sort of head covering. Everybody did in the 7th century. Everybody covered their hair. Uh, and you could just say that uh, the verses are telling women to draw their head coverings around them and cover themselves modestly. Or you could interpret it to say that you should put on a head covering even if you're not wearing it. Islamic scholars throughout the centuries had lots of opinions and debates about this about what exactly these verses mean and you know people have i i i was at a book okay i'm going to digress for a second i was at a book <laughs> event and and these uh these this muslim family came and they started heckling me and i just kept thinking i am doing you a favor by trying to explain islam to people but, <laughs> and here you are heckling me whereas all the non-muslims are sitting here nicely listening what were they
1: saying? I, I, I can't imagine. I, and this is—I'm—I'm I, I'm laughing in that how ridiculous this this sounds. Yes.
2: Well, they saw my picture, my poster that I was going to speak at this bookstore, and I didn't have a headscarf. I don't wear a headscarf. Oh, I see. And, and they're like, "Oh my God, this person is like, you know, an apostate or something." And so, <laughs> so they. And so they trooped in and their women were wearing burqas. And the whole time this guy was was saying, no, if you, the, the Quran absolutely requires head covering. If you read Surah An-Nisa, you'll know this. And I said, of course I've read Surah An-Nisa. And I finally said, you know what? Islamic scholars have been debating this point for 1400 years, but you're telling me that you have the right answer.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What a great line. <laughs>
2: so, so. so Islamic scholars through the centuries, they did debate on on what it meant to be modest. Everyone agrees that both men and women have to be modest, right? That that's in the Quran. But the question is, what is modesty? What does that mean, modesty? What does it mean that you have to cover? And in terms of women, all Islamic scholars agreed that women had to be covered from their shoulders to their knees, but beyond that, they disagreed. So most of them said only the hands, face, and feet should show, but they disagreed on what that meant. Was hands just hands to the wrist or was it hands to the elbow? Was feet feet to the ankles or feet to the knees? Was um, the chest had to be covered, but did that mean chest from the neck or chest from the cleavage? Do you see? It was all open to different different definitions and different interpretations very few of them said that the face had to be covered and so as a muslim you have to cover from your shoulders to your knees but beyond that it's open to interpretation so it it was it's a it's a fascinating thing but um as a muslim therefore you can choose whether to cover your head or not cover your head
1: yeah i I really love that example in the book and and I, i felt like i really kind of understood everything else that you were talking about when i read how um Sharia applied to that example. So thank you for that.
2: Oh, my pleasure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, uh, you wrote also that in FIC, that the consensus is reached less than 1% of the time, which I found really fascinating.
2: Yeah. So the way it worked is that the first thing you would do, if you were an Islamic legal scholar, say in the ninth century, you would look to see if there was a consensus on any point of law. And, chances are there wouldn't be because throughout throughout Islamic history there's only been about 1% of points that that everyone agrees on that there's a consensus on and the five pillars for example are something where there's a consensus like everybody agrees that what the five pillars are uh, but there were very few points of law like this and so if you didn't find a consensus then you had to you had to look to see if there was other if there were any other opinions on the subject, you would look to see the work of previous Islamic scholars to see if there's anything on your, on your point of law. And if there, there wasn't anything, then you would exercise independent reasoning and interpret the religious text yourself.
1: That, that to me i think is one of the key takeaways of, of the book and um cuz you know i think that l- like like you i was raised in the states and and was kind of told that you know this is what a muslim is supposed to do and and you know one of the other things that i took away from 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 your book is that human behavior is broken up into five different categories required recommended neutral disliked and prohibited i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that yeah
2: uh, this goes back to our, a different conception of law. So law right now, where we are in the States and in other countries, law is a top-down kind of a phenomenon where the state enforces the law. But um, in the Islamic legal system, there were not just two categories, illegal and legal. There were five categories. And because these were religious scholars, they were not necessarily, you know, they were not the state. In fact, uh, throughout, throughout Islamic history, that the religious scholars did not govern. The people who governed were different from the people who developed the religious law. Um, so what they did is say, well, some things are absolutely prohibited, like murder, and some things are absolutely required, like your prayers. But some things are uh, recommended, but not required, like extra prayers. Some things are disliked, but not prohibited, like like divorce. Um, divorce is not disliked, but it's but it's allowed. And some things are neutral, like um that the example like it was like watching star trek or wearing <laughs> yeah.
1: which you like you you really it's like star too. trek
2: <laughs> yeah you know i have to tell you i said when i first uh, started writing my first book, I was amazed at how many Star Trek examples just kind of sidled into my consciousness as I was writing this book. <laughs> and, and here I am, like writing a book on on Islam and Muslims, and I'm thinking about Star Trek examples. And I'm thinking, why? Why? Why am I thinking of Star Trek? And I realized <laughs> during the course of writing my first book it, this is that Star Trek was about universal values and social justice, and about embracing the aliens and about human nature. And that is a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about Islam and you know, religion generally, but, but certainly Islam, we're talking about human beings and human nature and um, fairness and social justice. And oftentimes I found a, I found a Star Trek example to, uh, to illustrate what I meant to say.
1: <laughs> I love it, I, I, I'm, I'm not a, a truckie, but um, uh, I totally respect what they do and their impact on, on, on culture.
2: But what a lot of people don't realize, actually, if you'll permit me to digress for a second. Please, please. What a lot of people don't realize is that, is that in the 1960s, there was a lot of censorship in television. And at the time, there were lots of cowboy and Western sorts of TV shows. And Jane Roddenberry um, wanted to do a show on social justice. But he didn't think he could get it past the censors. And so he decided to set it in space. He thought, well, if I do a science fiction show, then I can make it about, then I can do a show about social justice and they're not going to censor me. And so that's what he did. So Star Trek is not so much science fiction as it is social justice that happens to be set in space.
1: Similar to uh, a show that I really love, Battlestar Galactica, I think.
2: (laughs) Ah, that is a later thing, yes. Um, (laughs) And... Yeah, I have not watched that, I have to say, oh, but I
1: heard it's great. Really awesome. Highly recommend it. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. More about demystifying Sharia with Sumble Ali Karamali up after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
1: Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Sumble Ali Karamali, author of Demystifying Sharia, her new book that was released just last year. In the book, Sumble does an amazing job talking about what Sharia is and why, despite what you may hear from the media or your elected leaders, it is not taking over America. I asked her where these negative impressions of Sharia came from.
2: Yeah, um, this is a very deliberate thing, it was intentional. So as you know, a lot of Islamic terms of art have been co-opted by the media, by the anti-Muslim activists, right? Like jihad is sort of used interchangeably with terrorism, even though terrorism violates jihad, violates the rules of jihad. And yet they're used interchangeably in in our media. I don't know how many times the BBC, I've heard the BBC use um, jihadist as equivalent to terrorist. And it's so offensive. You know, it's like, it's like calling the Ku Klux Klan defenders of Christianity, right? So, the same with Sharia. It, you know, is it's just one of a group of words that have been co-opted in the public discourse, and this one was no accident. So, what happened in 2010 is that a right-wing lawyer by the name of David Shalmi decided that uh, he wanted to introduce the notion of a scary Islamic law into the American public discourse. He's a lawyer, so he knows perfectly well that Sharia, Islamic law, whatever you call it, cannot take over the United States. He knows that perfectly well. No religious law can take over the United States because of the First Amendment to our constitution, specifically the Establishment Clause. And yet Yerushalmi didn't really care about that. He just wanted to introduce the notion So he went to state legislatures and said, you really need anti-Sharia laws. Otherwise, Sharia is going to take over the United States. And he was wildly successful. He made a lot of money. He was able to convince 14 states to pass anti-Sharia legislation all for nothing. It's a colossal waste of time. Uh, (laughs) You know, no no religious law is going to take over the United States as long as we have our constitution. Uh, And yet he himself says that he doesn't really care about that his purpose was to introduce the idea of sharia as a scary thing uh sharia law by the way is a construct nobody says sharia law that is something that was kind of coined by you shalmi and his compatriots he is by the way part of the loose network of islamophobes called the islamophobia network it was uh, documented in the report by the Center for American Progress called Fear Inc as well as other other organizations. But anyway, so he he and his colleagues also have the ear of legislators, uh, legislators of um, also you know President Trump, a lot of people in Congress. and so he was able to push through this idea and it really took took fire this idea of um, Sharia as a, as a scare word and you had people, in Congress, oh, you still have people in Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying that Sharia is going to take over the United States. So that's how it all started. It's, um, you know, I don't know if you read Terry Pratchett, said, but he's I one of my know. favorite writers. And one of the things he says is that a lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the Islamophobia network is really good at spreading lies. And then Muslims have to kind of scramble to go and set the record straight. And it's always really hard because lies can be super simple. The truth is always more complicated. And also, you know, like Yirr he takes, it's not made up out of whole cloth. He takes a real word, a real Islamic word. He takes a real concept, that of Islamic law, but then he changes it and makes it into a scary thing. Yeah.
1: Um, what I really love about your book is how approachable it is and how it, there's like you said, there's so many great examples and, and counter arguments and, and whatnot, and that it it has provided me and and I hope that I can retain uh, you know a lot of what I've read uh, with the, the ammunition to to counter you know what I hear and what I see and 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 whatnot in, in the public discourse. So I, I thank you for that. I wanna uh, just move to um colonialism and its impact on um Islam and Sharia. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I get all the time is why have Muslims always been backward and why, you know, obviously Islam is oppressive because look at the state of Muslim countries. And it's a very frustrating attitude to come up against. And the, the answer really is that one, Muslims haven't always been backward, but two, the Muslim uh, world, quote-unquote, Muslim lands, I should say, um, they were all disrupted by colonialism. And to get to your question, um, and once you understand that, it's a little bit easier to understand what's happened. Unfortunately, even Muslims, like I was speaking to a young Egyptian student, and he said, you know, we were taught in Egypt that colonialism was good for us. It was good for Egypt, which I just found stunning. Yeah. (laughs) and and you know in america we're not really we don't understand colonization or colonialism we don't understand it because we grow up thinking about the 13 colonies um and and the fight with england but that was a fight between the colonizers and the mother country it wasn't a fight between colonizers and the colonized yeah you know if they had talked about the native americans and the colonizers in a reasonable way, then that that would have been the situation that we're talking about, about colonization. But the, but the colonists that thir- in the 13 colonies are never portrayed that way. So Americans, most Americans don't have a very good idea of what colonization means. And what it means is that an invading power goes to another country, takes the raw materials, takes the resources um, and subjugates the local population. What happened is that Almost ninety percent of Muslim lands were colonized by Western powers.
1: Wow!
2: Just take a minute to imagine, right? Yeah. What if ninety percent of Europe had been colonized by Muslim powers? What would the world look like? So, for more than a for a century or more, uh, in many places, more almost ninety percent of Muslim lands were colonized. So that meant that um, the raw materials and the resources were taken back to the Western countries. It also means that the industrial sectors and the artisan classes, which developed those raw materials, were never able to develop or they had started developing and they were sort of dismantled. Um, It also made for schisms in Muslim lands because the colonizers would train some people in their culture and, and language, but not others. So, for example, in Algeria, there were some people who spoke French and some people who spoke Arabic. They also the colonizers also often kind of fomented divisions between ethnic and religious groups. So in India, where there had had been pretty much a pluralistic equilibrium, in the words of William Dalrymple, for quite a while, for centuries, um, the British used Muslims to put down Hindu uprisings and Hindus to put down Muslim uprisings, and um, fomented divisions between between the two groups. Divide and conquer is a reasonable strategy, right? right yeah but but it has left it's, it has left the smoking consequences behind and so when Judaism and Christianity were able to modernize in response to the industrial revolution is, islam was not because muslims were subjugated and what that means in terms of sharia and islamic law and in the legal system is that islamic legal institutions were dismantled under under colonialism islamic religious institutions were dismantled under colonialism there was no more funding. It was it didn't pay to be a, an Islamic scholar anymore because um, there were more job opportunities in Western law, right? Um, the, the whole Sharia legal system was dismantled. Western judges were sort of exported to the colonized countries. In India, there was a, a, a Sharia-based legal system, but it was replaced with British law, an amalgam of British law, so the Sharia-based legal system, which had operated pretty much for a thousand years, um, came apart during colonization. And then, of course, as you know, when, when Muslim countries did get their independence, this was only in the mid-20th century, and oftentimes the borders of these countries are are not really according to ethnicities and language. They're according to where the Western powers decided to draw the borders. The Kurds, for example, are our minorities in five different countries that's what's made it difficult um even when the the muslim majority countries got independence you know they inherited the colonial state which is what which was a an autocratic state that was designed for domination it wasn't designed for democracy and the people who went into power often became dictators because there was no system of checks and balances and sudden power without checks and balances often results in dictatorship so that's what we're, st- it's a long story. It's yeah. what we're struggling with. Um, I'm amazed at how many people think that I'm blaming the West when I talk about colonialism. And it's not a matter of blame, right? It's just it's just history, you know, empires fall. Everybody, this happens all the time. It's, It's just history. And it's not a matter of blaming the West. It's a matter of explaining why Muslim majority countries have had trouble becoming democratic, for example.
1: So it's so great. I mean, I I wish that this book was around, you know, uh, when I was growing up, because I think that it would have just, yeah, like you said, uh, um, help inform me about my own religion. And so uh, grateful for what you have done and and what you're what you are continuing to do. Um, If there's one one key takeaway that you wanted someone who might not read the book, um, what, what would it be?
2: Ooh, so many. But okay,
1: <laughs> trust
2: me, I know. <laughs> um, okay. How about this one? Um, there was not consensus a lot of the time, right? People being who they are, most people, most of the time, there was disagreement. But Islamic scholars all agreed that every Islamic law, every religious guideline, has to be in accordance with the Maqasid al-Sharia. The now, the Maqasid means the goals of the Sharia. So Islamic scholars articulated five, sometimes six, depending on how you articulate them, but five or six goals of the Sharia that every Islamic law had to comply with, had to align with. And so they said, every Islamic law has to comply with the following goals, that everyone has the right to life, the right to intellect, the right to family, the right to religion, and the right to resources. All Islamic law has to comply with those goals. Now, to me, as a Muslim American, that sounds to me kind of like our U.S. Constitution.
1: 100%, yeah.
2: Doesn't it? And yet, these goals were articulated a thousand years before the U.S. Constitution.
1: That's just really amazing and very, very interesting. I thank you for sharing that. Sumbul, thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. This has been a really great uh, conversation, and uh, I hope to have you on again sometime soon.
2: Well, I would love to, and thank you so much for having me, and it's been an honor, I said.
1: My interview with Sumbul was recorded in June of 2021. Her book is called Demystifying Sharia, and I highly recommend that you get it. Also, check out her website, SumbulAliKaramali.com. We'll have links to that and everything else that we talked about in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Today's show was produced by Lindsay Gamble, Marconato, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our music. American Wilson Project is a production of Refleon Media. You can find us online at AmericanWilsonProject.com.